Well, we're in Ecclesiastes chapter number 4 today. We've been preaching through the book of Ecclesiastes. I don't know that I've ever heard very many messages preached out of Ecclesiastes. I've heard some, but I don't know that I've ever heard a series of messages preached throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, and that's what we're attempting to do with the grace of God. And we've made our way up to chapter 4. We're in a series, and we're calling it The Search for Meaning. A lot of people just wandering around in life today. A lot of people wandering around in life, don't know why they're here, not sure where they're going, if anywhere, not sure why they're supposed to be doing anything while they're here. And so we're in the search for meaning, and Solomon had such a search, and we're going to find out from him what he found out didn't work and what did work. In the Christmas season, we celebrate the birth of Christ. In the Garden of Eden, man had fellowship with God. There was a companionship, a relationship with God in the Garden. But because of sin, man fell, and that fellowship was broken. Jesus came to restore that fellowship, that companionship, that brotherly attachment, that connection that we need with heaven. And that's what we're preaching about this morning, the power of relationships, the power of relationships. And Ecclesiastes chapter number 4, verse number 1, after Solomon has been looking around, trying to, trying to make sense of everything that he's seen in life, he's a man, this, I tried this, it didn't work, tried that, it didn't work, it seemed like life is meaningless, people come and people go, people get born and people die, and uh, it just seemed like an endless chain of monotony. And then in verse 1 of chapter 4, he says, So I returned and considered all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And make note of that term, under the sun, because as man looks at life on this earthly plane as just under the sun and not above the sun, he'll have a wrong and faulty view. And, be, and behold, the tears of such were oppressed, and they had no com comforter. Probably ought to underline that phrase, no comforter. And on the side of their oppressors there was power, but they had no comforter. Wherefore I praise the dead which are already dead more than the living which are yet alive. Yea, better is he than both they which hath not yet been, who hath not seen the evil work that is done under the sun. Again, I considered all travail and every right work, that for this a man is envied of his neighbor. This is also vanity and vexation of spirit. The fool foldeth his hands together and eateth his own flesh. Better is an handful with quietness than both hands full with travail and vexation of spirit. Verse 7, Then I returned and I saw vanity under the sun. There is one alone and there is not a second. Yea, he that hath neither child nor brother, yet is there no end of all his labor. Neither is his eye satisfied with riches. Neither saith he, for whom do I labor and bereave my soul of good? This is also vanity. Yea, it is a sore travail. Two are better than one, because they have good reward for their labor. For if 
they fall, the one lift up his fellow, but woe to him that is alone. Underline that word, alone, when he falleth. For he hath not another to help him up. Again, if two lie together, then they have heat. But how can one be warm alone? And if one prevail against him, two shall withstand him. And a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better is a poor and wise child than an old and foolish king who will no more be admonished. For out of prison he cometh to reign, whereas he that is born in his kingdom becometh poor. I considered all the living which walk under the sun with the second child that shall stand in his stead. There is no end of all the people, even of all that have been before them. They also that come after shall not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and vexation of spirit. Father, we pray that you'd bless in the message this morning. May the Holy Spirit of God empower this mind, this heart, these lips. Lord, let us be moved by the Word of God itself. May the Spirit of God move our hearts and change us for the better. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The power of relationships. We've been exploring through Solomon's eyes everything that he saw and did and tried where he had endeavored for a good portion of his life to try to find satisfaction and yet he said I tried all of that and I still felt empty, worthless, unfulfilled, meaningless, a meaningless life. Well the enjoyment and purpose and pleasantness of life hinges on relationships. We humans are made to connect closely with others. A baby is most content when its mom is holding it to her bosom. A first grader goes to school in the midst of a sea of new faces and new experiences and new places, intimidated at times, finds great confidence and comfort in knowing that they found a good friend, a best friend in the midst of all that. A lonely teen who wonders if if she's a kid or is she an adult. Her emotions swing both ways and she looks for and longs for a companion, a friend, another person who can understand her deep emotions. The guy who's been trying hard in this competitive world, maybe coming through sports, maybe going into the world of work and, and the competitive nature of the world of jobs and work. He, he's working at all that and competing against his fellow man and it seems like, is this all there is to live for? And then he meets a sweetheart and she completes what he was missing. And his life is different. She gives him a greater purpose in life. You'd agree with me on this, wouldn't you? When Jesus comes into a life, things are changed for the better. Relationships. Relationships, we crave it because we're human. We're designed that way. We're made that way. God made us to crave a relationship and therefore we long to be fulfilled and many times we live a long, long time like Solomon did before we realize that 
The greatest relationship is with Him, but we crave relationships with other human beings. And that's the way we're made. People everywhere, all over the world, we're pretty much the same. Relationships enrich and intensify and give fulfillment and meaning to life. It gives you satisfaction. What salient points did Solomon discover in chapter 4 and throughout the book of Ecclesiastes that might help us to see the importance of relationships? Number one, he found out the value of companionship. The value of companionship. Life is much more meaningful when you have somebody to share it with. Have you ever been maybe to a museum or or a car show, or a, an athletic game, or you went somewhere that things were interesting, but there was nobody with you to share it with, and you thought, boy, if there was just somebody I could tell about this. Our older son, was uh, he, he loves classic cars and all. He loves a lot more car, different kinds of cars than I do. I'm a, I'm a classic car freak. I like the old, old cars because I'm an old, old guy, but he... He was at a car uh, museum in near St. Louis yesterday, and, and he was texting me pictures all day long <laughs> of cars. He was taking pictures in that museum, sending me pictures of this and that and the other thing. And I, I would reply back to some of those because I admired them. And uh, then, we, uh, then we just got busy doing other things. And he must have sent me 30 pictures. He's wanting to share that with somebody that, that enjoyed the same thing that he did. And that's the way we are. We want to share our lives. And it's an odd person that just wants to live life alone and not interact or connect with other people. Well, there's romantic companionship. We know about that, don't we? Romantic Solomon wrote about it in the very next book in the Bible after Ecclesiastes. He, he wrote about Song of Solomon and uh, the, the romantic relationship that exists within marriage and, uh, and what bliss can be found in a romantic companionship. And that's why God said in the Garden of Eden to Adam, it's not good that man be alone. He needs somebody to share life with, a, a close companion, somebody who is, you know, your hearts are knit together. And there's just something about that romantic relationship that is it's just different than any other. But it is a companionship. And it's not the book of Song of Solomon, the same author as wrote Ecclesiastes under the inspiration of God. He's not extolling the virtues or the pleasures of just the physical relationship, although that's included, but he's not extending that offer to those who live morally loose as they do in this day without the benefit of marriage. It's for married people. And you married people, you'd do well to read the book of Song of Solomon together. Sometimes it's called Song of Songs and, or just shortened down to the song and some label it canticles. But it's, it's a very valuable book about uh, romantic bliss within marriage. You know what marriage is? It's, marriage is when you agree to spend the rest of your life together sleeping in a room that's too warm with another person who's sleeping in a room that's too cold. 
It's kind of like church house, isn't it? <laughs> it's hard, you know. So what we do to try to resolve the issues, some are too hot, some are too cold, so we just set two thermostats on two different temperatures. <laughs> no, I don't think that'll work. Romantic relationships are not the only relationships. That is one, and it's an important one. But what about the camaraderie that we can have just with good friends? We need friends. Friends provide comfort. Look at it again in Ecclesiastes, our text, in verse number 1. He said, So I returned and considered all the oppressions that were done under the sun, and behold, the tears of such as were oppressed, and they had no comforter. No comforter. Friends can provide comfort. Have you ever grieved? And there's some grieving that a large part of it is done alone, but it sure is good. Now, you... Don't make the mistake of thinking that you've got the magic words to say to somebody who's lost a loved one or going through a divorce or, or they've just gone bankrupt. Don't think you've got the magic words that's going to solve all their problems at that moment. Preachers make that mistake sometimes. <laughs> think, I can wave a magic wand and I'll fix everything. No, you can't. You know what you can do? You can put an arm around their shoulder and say, Brother, I'm praying for you. You say, sister, I just want you to know I, I love and care for you and your family. You can do that. And that is a great deal of comfort. When my dad passed away suddenly, 30 some odd years ago, boy, it was a shock to me and the rest of my family. And man, at the funeral, I just couldn't believe he was gone. And one of my, old, my best old friends that I grew up with came by and, and I was just weeping and he just come by and put his arms around me and kind of rubbed my head and said, I'm praying for you, Rick. Now, he couldn't fix the situation, but he sure was able to give me some comfort. That was a long time ago, and I still remember that friend. We need companionship of friends. Nobody can go it alone, nor should anybody try. Friends provide comfort. Friends can provide edification and inspiration. Sometimes you're just maybe a little discouraged or out of energy. Maybe you're just kind of blocked and don't know where to move forward to the next phase of life. And a good friend can inspire you. Is that not true? A good friend can lift you up, get you, help you to get up out of the dumps and encourage you. You need friends. That's what the Bible is teaching us in this passage of Scripture. Friends, Proverbs 27, 17, again by the same author, Solomon. Proverbs 27, 17 says, Iron sharpeneth iron. So a man sharpeneth the countenance of his friend. You need a friend. Everybody needs a friend. Everybody needs friends. And that friend can sharpen you put the cutting edge back on you again. Friendship increases productivity. It makes you able to accomplish more. Proverbs 14, 4. The Bible says, Where no oxen are, the crib is clean, but much increase is by the strength of the ox. Now, in today's world, we don't make the connection there immediately, or some of us don't, but the crib was a stall in the barn where you would keep 
your animals, in this case the ox, and that crib was where you'd keep them shut up till you're ready for them to come back out maybe the next morning. And he says, where no oxen are, the crib is clean. You know, cows can be pretty messy. They don't know about bathrooms. And you got to watch where you step. <laughs> but he's saying, where there's no oxen, that crib will be nice and clean. Boy, it'll be, it'll be clean as a pin. But the oxen was what was used to plow the fields and harvest the grain. He says, you know, if you had not got any oxen, that, that crib's going to be nice and clean. You've got nothing to bellyache about, but you won't have nothing to eat. You won't have any grain. You won't get anything planted. You won't get to harvest anything. So it's better to have a crib that's a little messy because the oxen provides the strength, the camaraderie, the help. My dad was a greater friend than I realized at the time. You know, when you're a teenager, you know, everything's, everything's about you. <laughs> and my dad, boy, he was a good friend. I didn't know it at the time. I do now. But he was a good friend. He helped me build a house to live in. That would have cost me thousands of dollars in labor. You know what? He did it for free. Because my dad was my friend. And he just wanted to help. And he'd go out there and he'd get there early and stay late. He'd labor. Even though he's up in the years, he would labor to help me do that. He would help me when I was, when I was a younger teen. <laughs> he, would, uh, he would help me get cars. My first, car, my first old car was a, an old rusty 55 Chevy. Boy, I'd love to have that thing now. I thought then it was our worst old car that ever existed. But boy, it would be valuable now. He... He, he helped me buy that old thing. I was 13 years old. Now, parents don't do this. My dad was a good man, but he didn't know beans about letting you grow up before you started getting stuff like that. He, he helped me get a, a 55 Chevy when I was 13 years old. Well, we, back then, we learned to drive when we were 10, 11, 12 years old. I mean, we were driving tractors and cars and trucks and working on the farm and stuff. Well, I wanted, all, some of the other teens were getting cars, and I wanted one, and my uncle had traded in a 55 Chevy, and I told Ed, I said, boy, I'd love to have that car. He said, well, son, you ain't got no money. <laughs> I said, Dad, you have. <laughs> money grows on trees for parents. You know that. I mean, they've got, one of our daughters said one time, wanted, to buy, wanted me to buy them something. I said, well, honey, we had not got the money for that. She said, don't you have a checkbook? I said, yeah, but it kind of helps to have some money in the bank before you write the check. Well, Dad bought me this old, this old car. It was $90. 90 bucks for a 55 Chevy. $90. <laughs> Back then, $90 was like <laughs> nearly a life savings, especially for a teenager. Dad helped me get that old car. Then it had to be overhauled. It was burning oil like I'll get out. He even paid for that for me. My parents don't give your kids everything on silver platter. My dad loved me way too much. And I went to Washington and worked out there in the fruit harvest one year trying to make my fortune in the orchards. <laughs> and I told dad, I said, I've saved up $800. And when I get home, I'm going to buy me, a, buy me a car. That old 55 Chevy just wouldn't cut it anymore. I'm getting to think about girls now, and you've got you to get a chick magnet 
<laughs> and that old 55, 55 Chevy was just kind of rusted out and looked ugly. And so Dad went, before I even got home, he went and shopped around and found me a 59 Chevy. Had the big wings on the back, 59 Impala. Bought it for $800. I already told him how much it had. Now, the only thing I was mad at him about is it had a six-cylinder instead of V8. I wanted to hot rod a little bit. <laughs> Dad would do a lot of stuff for me, and I couldn't count the times on all of my hands and toes, the times he bailed me out when I needed him. He was a friend. A friend can help you to be more productive, whether it's working on a job, whatever you're doing. A friend can help you. to be. You'll get more done with a friend. You ever carry, try to carry something heavy by yourself? Isn't it a lot easier if you've got a friend, grab the other end and help you carry it? Yeah. I was working on a carpenter crew once, and, and the roofer, he was uh, not on our crew, but he worked with our crew. And... Him and his wife had a little baby. A little baby died. And just lived a week or so. And they were poor as Job's turkey. I mean, they didn't have any money. And they couldn't afford to take the baby to the funeral home. It was just going to be more money than they could scrape up. And, and the law would let them bury a, a body if it was done within 24 hours, I think. And so we took our crew went over in an old field over there on their place, and we swapped around with pick and shovel and took turns digging a grave for that little baby, and we had a service for that little baby. You know, friends come in handy. He didn't have any money. What would they have done? He couldn't have dug that hole and got the baby buried in 24 hours. Didn't have anybody to share the grief with him. Didn't have anybody to say a few words at the grave. I wasn't even a Christian back then, but I thought that was a nice thing to do. As we increase our church membership, now you can't tell it by looking this morning, <laughs> but we got thousands of people all over the world. <clears throat> Seems like it. the Christmas time, while we're celebrating the birth of Jesus, we, we find other places to do it. <laughs> but our church membership increases and people volunteer to be leaders and, and they serve the Lord in this church we have increased labor we're able to reach more souls for Christ and we're able to disciple more people and we're able to get more done in the ministry because we got more people that are coming together and say hey I'll volunteer here am I send me <laughs> and as we have more of that it pays to have some friends. It pays to have some help. And God didn't mean for us to go it alone. He meant for us to have people in our midst, people that we could embrace and love and share our experiences with and share our labor with. And labor is increased and the productivity increases when you've got friends. Now keep in mind you can have wrong friends. The Bible does say, I believe it was Solomon that said it in the book of Proverbs that that a companion of fools would be destroyed. He told us to pick our friends carefully. Pick your friends. Don't pick them to pieces, but pick your friends. There is a danger in finding false friends. You know, if, you're, if you have a wrong attitude about things and you begin to find somebody to comfort you in your sin, then you can adopt the wrong kind of friends. They're going to tell you everything's okay. 
It's not okay with God. There'll be other people who will befriend you for their selfish reasons. And some of them will befriend you because the only reason they've got to like you is because you hate the same people. If that's the only basis for our friendship, we've got the wrong friends. I read this, a statistic. Uh, single men, <laughs> we're talking back on the marriage thing, but it involves companionship. Single men are jailed more often, earn less, and have more illnesses and die at a younger age than married men. Isn't that good to know? <laughs> married men with cancer live 20% longer than single men with the same cancer. Women who, have, who often have more close friendships than men serve lo- uh, survive longer with the same cancers. Married or not, relationships keep us alive. Do you know that doctors will tell you that if you've got good relationships in your life and you go into the hospital, you'll have a better attitude about healing up and getting better? Relationships. Not everyone chooses or needs to be married since some are perfectly content that God designed them to be single. And if they can do that without uh, committing fornication, then great. 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 7, verse 8 and 9, Paul said, I say therefore to the unmarried and widows, it is good for them that if they abide even as I. But if they cannot contain, let them marry, for it's better to marry than to burn. And to burn there, not talking about hell, it's talking about burning in lust. And so if someone has a great desire for the opposite sex, uh, then perhaps it'd be better to go ahead and get married. But God has gifted some men, uh, some women, to serve the Lord singly without marriage. And that's okay. And we shouldn't be rude asking people, why ain't you married yet? (laughs) That's kind of rude, isn't it? Same way with people are going to have babies. I mean, if they didn't have a baby yet, people say, what's wrong with y'all? Why are you not having babies? (laughs) Uh, The only time I scold people for not having babies is when we're trying to grow the church and you just need to have more babies. There are many fulfilling types of relationships besides marriage. There are companionships that are used to increase life's meaning. Life and the search for joy and fulfillment and happiness and pleasantness in life. It is enhanced manifold times by the relationships we nurture around us. Notice the second thing, the futility of selfishness. Uh, Solomon saw this. Now he's saying when people just try to go it alone and they don't want to share their life with anybody and they're just, they're just focused on, well, I'm just going to get what I can out of life, go for all the gusto I can, going to get all the riches I can, going to grab all the stuff I can accumulate, and I don't care about anybody else. I don't need people. Yeah, we need people. And Solomon saw the, he saw the futility in that. He observes the emptiness in verse number 8. Look at it with me in our text. Chapter 4, verse 8 of Ecclesiastes. He said, there is one alone, and there is not a second. Yea, he hath neither child nor brother, yet is there no end of all his labor. He said, this guy doesn't have a wife, he doesn't have kids, he doesn't have a family, he doesn't have a friend, he doesn't have anybody, he doesn't have a workmate. He's just laboring for all he can get, and what's he going to do with it? He's going to die, and it'll all be gone. He can't take it with him. 
He's not helping anybody. He says, neither is his eye satisfied with riches, neither saith he, for whom do I labor? I mean, he's working, and for what? He has nobody to share life with. It's futile to try to live life as an isolated person, as an island in the sea of all the people of the world. It's empty. Well, the diligent worker, we'll see him as we read <clears throat> in this verse, you'll see the diligent worker. There's some that work hard and they're very skillful at it. They work hard just to gain riches, but they fail at relationships. And it's futile. They turn out like... <laughs> You've probably seen, have you seen the, the Christmas Carol on TV yet this year? I like the old one from back in the 30s or 40s. Uh, the Christmas Carol, Scrooge. Scrooge is trying to gather up. All he's thinking about is, I got to make money, got to make money. Don't care about you, nephew. Don't care. I don't have a wife, don't have kids, don't have any friends. Nobody likes me and I don't care. And so Scrooge is just trying to gather everything together that he can get. And it's not fulfilling. He's bitter and mean and nasty. And it's not until after some other visits from the fiction, fictionary angels that he gets things straightened out. And some people like Scrooge can focus on stuff. Are you listening to me? And it's not just rich people. Sometimes poor people covet as badly as rich people do. I'm saying that again. Sometimes poor people covet things as badly as rich people do and they poison the well of friendships in doing it. Solomon said that doesn't work. And then he goes on and talks about the listless and lazy one. The one that won't do anything. He says there's one that folds his hands together and eats his own flesh. And in Proverbs, he talks about the folding of the hands, a little sleep, a little slumber, the lazy person. See, he's at the other end. You've got the one guy that's skilled and he's working hard, but he's just working for riches and nothing else. And on the other end, you've got the, you've got the lazy man. He's good for nothing and don't care. He enjoys sleeping all day long. He enjoys just consuming whatever anybody will give him, but he's not going to work for it. So you've got two ends of the spectrum there. Both are wrong. And then... Notice with me in verse number 13. Here's one that's a whole different category. Verse number 13 says, Better is a poor and wise child than an old and foolish king. Now watch this. Who will no more be admonished. You know what he's saying? Oh, the king's got it all. He's got the power. He's got authority. He's got the riches. But he won't listen to anybody. He won't shut up his bragging. He won't shut up his know-it-all attitude and let anybody give him any help, any counsel, any friendship, any companionship because he knows it all. Don't tell me nothing, man. I know it all. That's what he's saying. And a person like that is miserable. And Solomon says, this is the guy who has isolated himself into a prison of I know everything. You can't tell me nothing because you're just a little peon and I'm the big me. Isn't that a horrible thing to feel? That I can't take counsel from anybody? 
that I can't listen to anybody's advice, that I can't embrace anybody because I think I'm too big, too important, much too knowledgeable to let myself be vulnerable. That's what the old king was. He said, better, better is a poor and wise child than an old and selfish king who won't listen to anybody. You know, when you get to the point where you won't listen to any counsel, nobody can tell you anything, you're in a serious condition. Hello? The solution is found in balance among these three types we find here, the hard-working man and the slothful man and the old man going it alone that won't be admonished. The solution is found in Ecclesiastes 4.9. Watch this. Let's read in verse number 9. Two are better than one. Here we're, see, we're seeing the value of relationships, of companionship, of having more than just me. Verse 9. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. They're going to get more done because they're working together on things. They're sharing life together, sharing labor together. Verse 10, For if they fall, the one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him that is alone when he falleth, for he hath not another to help him up. You know, when you get down, it's good to have somebody help you up. We need companionships. Verse 11 says, Again, if two lie together... Then they have heat. But how can one be warm alone? When I was a kid, we, we had a lot bigger families generally back then than we have now. And I remember our cousins and our family and other families, uh, man, we all bunked up. There'd be four or five kids in one bed <laughs> trying to stay warm in the wintertime. We didn't have central heat. and had no fireplace or a wood stove, maybe in the living room. In the bedrooms, you'd see your breath in there. It's so cold. And if you didn't all bunk up together, you'd freeze to death in the wintertime. Stack up some quilts on top of you and try to stay warm with each other's heat. And then it says here in verse 12, And if one prevail against him, two shall withstand him. If, if you're going to battle, it's better to have somebody that's going to help defend you and help, help work things out for you. And he says, And a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Uh, if you've got the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you've got a pretty strong threefold, threefold cord there. Leonard Syme, a professor of epidemiology at the University of California at Berkeley, indicates the importance of social ties and social support systems in relation to mortality and disease rates. He points to Japan as being number one in the world with respect to health and then discusses the close social, cultural, and traditional ties that that country has as, as a reason. He believes that the more social ties, the better the health and the lower the death rate. Conversely, he indicates that the more isolated the person, the poorer the health and the higher the death rate. Social ties are good preventative medicine for physical problems and for mental, emotional behavior problems. Listen, the Bible has had it right all along. We have lived for centuries and millennia where families were traditional, a nuclear family they call it today, and where there was a father and a mother and the kids all in the home and dad worked and mom took care of the house and children obeyed their parents. That's unique, isn't it? And we had a, a, a family tradition going for 
hundreds and thousands of years, but now there's all sorts of movements and philosophies out there that wants to tear down this nuclear family because before socialism and communism and the other philosophies that want to take control, they know, and this is a proven historical fact, that those who want to take over the world and take over a country, they first have to destroy your religion and your family, your traditions, and that may explain why they want to tear down all those statues so we can't remember our heritage, our traditions. A lot of the traditions that exist may not be very valuable, but traditions altogether involve some that are good. The family is one that's perfect. Who instituted the family in the first place. God did in the Garden of Eden. And don't ever think that there's anything that re will replace the nuclear family. That traditional dad and mom in the home is why the absence of those, usually the dad, is one reason there's so much thuggery and thievery and rape and robbery and murder in the world is because a lot of kids are growing up in homes where they don't have a dad that says, hey, there's a man in the house. Are you here? I'm not talking about a brute. I'm talking about a man in the house. A man that says, this is the way we're going to do this. And a mom that supports her husband and says, yes, we are. We're going to go to church on Sunday. You kids are going to mind. You're going to go to school. You're going to take a bath and brush your teeth. <laughs> you know, a lot of people say, well, I don't want to force my kids to go to church because I was forced to go to church as a kid. Well, if you were forced to brush your teeth as a kid, did you quit brushing your teeth too because you were forced as a kid? <laughs> That's kind of a dumb argument, isn't it? Did you take baths as a kid? Well, you didn't quit taking them just because you moved out of that house, did you? And so going to church is a good thing. Now, I know, I realize I'm preaching to the choir, but there's a few people out there that may be watching on YouTube. You got right with God by watching some preaching on YouTube, didn't you, Taylor? And that's why we do this. Men just like him, women just like him, and kids and hear the truth of God's word because they're watching online. But now once you get things straightened out, quit watching online and get to church. <laughs> and all of God's people said, yeah, you make me feel lonely sometimes. You're my companions, aren't you? Well, the last thing, we're done. The wisdom of embracing contentment. Look at verse number 6 in our text. Chapter 4, verse number 6. Better is a handful with quietness than both the hands full with travail and vexation of spirit. You know what he's talking about? He's talking about learning to be content. That's not saying you ought not to have ambition. That's not saying that you ought not try to work your way up on your job and do a little better. It's not saying that it's wrong to have a little better car or a little better house. It's not saying that's wrong, but it's that you ought to be content until you get there. And what you have now, if you're not happy with what you've got now, you probably won't be happy when you get there. Contentment. Solomon is saying you have to learn to be content. Otherwise, it's travail and vexation of spirit. Philippians 4.11, you know this verse. Not that I respect, that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. Whatever you've got right now, be happy. Be joyful. Be content. That's where you are now. You can't live in the future, but you can live today. If you'll be content now, then when you get on down the road in the future and you get that better stuff that you want, then maybe you can be content there too. 
But if you can't be content back here, that stuff ain't going to matter, friend. You need relationships. Here's the Ten Commandments of human relations. Number one, speak to people. There's nothing as nice as a cheerful word or greeting. Parents, can I just tell you, y'all teach your kids to speak. When somebody speaks to them, tell them to speak back instead of being snobby. Number two, smile at people. First, speak to them when you're spoken to, or if they don't speak to you, you greet them anyway. And second, smile at people. It takes 72 muscles to frown and only 14 to smile, so it'll make it easier on you. (laughs) Call people by name. Music to anyone's ears is the sound of their own name. I remember Taylor's name. It's because we didn't have two visitors in here today. (laughs) If we had two, we'd all be in trouble. (laughs) Number four, be friendly and helpful. Number five, be cordial. Speak and act as if everything you did is a pleasure. Don't be grumpy. Don't be grouchy. Be genuinely interested in people. Otherwise, they'll get the idea that you're just in this for yourself. Be interested in them. Be generous with praise and cautious with criticism. Be considerate with the feelings of others. There's usually three sides to a controversy. Yours, the other fellows, and then the right one. Be alert to serve. What we do for others says a lot for how we view companionship. You see, we oughtn't to be in companionships just for what we can get out of them. We ought to be serving other people. A man that hath friends must show himself friendly. And number 10, add to all of this a good sense of humor and a big dose of patience and a dash of humility. Humor. That's why, you know, I've heard some preachers say, I don't think the pulpit's any place for any... Any frivolity, no humor at all. Well, I don't think it ought to be turned into a late night show of uh, comedy. But a little humor is pretty good. I think Jesus had humor. Maybe the story of Mamie Adams at the post office will help you understand the need for connection with people. This is back when the post offices still had stamp machines, Paul. <laughs> Mamie went in the post office one day and it was at Christmas time and man, the lines were long and she was standing in line waiting to get up to the counter to buy some stamps and the lady standing behind her said, you know, you don't have to go up to the counter to get stamps. There's a machine right over there. She said, yeah, but that machine won't ask me about my arthritis. We need connections. We're designed to care and to be cared for to crave companionship, to love and to be loved. So this chapter 4 unveils the profound wisdom that Solomon discovered as he looked at life under the sun and saw the futility of it and how doing it God's way works the best. Maybe we can leave today with a renewed understanding of what companionship means in any of these areas. Life on this earthly plane is filled with more meaning when you develop relationships. But there is another plane to be considered. Life will end in this temporary world we live in. 
but there is an eternal plane. And that's the one we need to really be thinking about very strongly. Because when this life is over, there's, there's only one who can transport us over safely to the other side of that eternal plane. The Lord Jesus Christ came to be born in Bethlehem, live a perfect life, to die on a cross, to be resurrected from the grave so that He could be our sacrifice, our Redeemer, in place of our sins. Friend, if you've never been born again, you are a sinner. According to the Bible, you are a sinner. Everybody born on the face of the earth is a sinner. And there's only one remedy for that sin, and that's the blood of Jesus Christ. The Bible says, hey, we've learned all morning on this, that it's good to have companionship, relationships, but there's only one friend that can get you across to the other side. Only Jesus. Your other friends can help you till the day of your death, and then it's all over. Nothing more they can do for you. But if you've got Jesus, that friend that sticketh closer than a brother, if you've got him, he'll lead you safely across to the other side. Do you know him as your Savior? Have you been born again by the blood of Christ? Let's pray together, shall we? Father, we love you and thank you that you have sent us a Savior. Not to come to a cradle in Bethlehem and stay there, but Lord, to live that sinless life so that he could be the sinless Savior that could pay for our sins and robe us with his righteousness. Lord, because he came out of the grave, we can see that this life on this earth does not have to be the end, that we can enjoy life on the eternal plane forever and ever and ever.